Welcome to the Nourish Babes podcast. We're your hosts, Bella and Madison, your go-to besties for all things women's wellness. We're here to help you balance your hormones, heal your gut, learn how to eat, exercise, sleep, manage your stress, break free of diet culture, and get confident as fuck about your own health and healing. Let's dive into today's episode. Before we dive into the episode, are you subscribed yet? Nourish Babes podcast monthly paid subscribers receive access to two to three additional podcast episodes per month, which are longer, more in-depth, and more specific than our free episodes, exclusive discounts and offerings, and also the potential to be featured on one of our case study episodes, where you send in your health concerns and we spend a whole episode sharing our personalized diet, lifestyle, and supplement advice for you. So are you ready to subscribe? If you're listening on Spotify, click the link in the show notes or click the lock icon on Spotify paid episodes. If you're on Apple, click the link in the show notes. On Apple, these episodes are actually hidden from your feed. Once you're subscribed, you will gain immediate access to past and future subscriber episodes. So we hope to see you there. In this episode, we're going to cover the USDA food guidelines, what parts we agree with and what parts we don't, and how they affect your hormones, gut, and overall health. We also offer our framework for eating that's much more simple, effective, and delicious. So first off, what are the dietary guidelines? Essentially, they are guidelines that provide advice on what to eat and drink to meet nutritional needs, promote health, and prevent disease. So a very brief background, the USDA guidelines first came out in 1980, which is very recent. Like 40 years ago? What? And they're actually, they're updated every single five years. And if you're older or remember, they used to be called the, used to be called the My Pyramid. Mm -hmm. Food Pyramid. The Food Pyramid. Yeah. So now they're the, uh, it's called the My Plate. Mm -hmm. So... Just a couple of things we wanted to discuss is, first off, what did we eat before these guidelines came out and how how did we even know what to eat? So it's interesting that they only came out 40 years ago and it's like, oh, now we're supposed to eat this way because someone declared it 40 years ago that this is the way we eat. It's also interesting that it's updated all the time. Like, that's just interesting to me. Anyways, so traditionally, what did traditional cultures eat? Well, honestly, it really depended on where you lived. So people in the north ate more meats, whereas people in the other tropics definitely ate more fruits and roots and vegetables. But in general, most of these cultures, traditional cultures, had in common that they ate a variety of meats. They included dairy, fruits, some fermented grains, and some plants. So it wasn't really that complicated and it was pretty easily easy to figure out what to eat because there weren't all these weird modern frankenfoods, which I like to call them. There wasn't any Twinkies, there wasn't Ho-Hos, all these like weird abstract processed foods that we have so much available now. For sure. And I like to always think about just like asking older people what they ate. So I really like to have conversations with people in, um, 
yeah, and ask them what they ate, like what what did they eat growing up, what types of foods did they have. So I walk a lot, and there is a older man that's usually outside doing some gardening or watering his lawn on my walks that lives by my house. And the other day, I told him that I'm a nutritionist and that this is what I do for my profession. And he immediately was like, "Oh, I'm sure you think what I eat is crazy." I was like, well, tell me, like, what do you, what do you eat? And he's like, well, I eat lots of butter and steak every day and eggs and sourdough bread. And he was going off on all these foods that he and his wife eat. And he also said that he had a daughter who is a dietitian. And I said, I am not a dietitian. I have a very different perspective on nutrition. And I think what you're eating is awesome. And he was super surprised because the idea of what we should be eating nowadays is incredibly different than what he grew up with. And so he grew up, he was telling me that he grew up on a farm. He would have to move tons and tons of hay every single day. And he said that if we did not eat meat and if we did not eat steak and ground like beef products at night, like we would not have the strength to do work the next day, which is so wild to me. And he said, yeah, he's like the fish and chicken didn't even suffice. Like it, we needed we needed meat products or we needed red meat, especially. So, so interesting because I remember when I was taking my master's degree, I was definitely more into the plant-based realm, but I yeah. wasn't totally plant-based. I was never fully plant-based. And sometimes me and my mom would talk about this. If we felt really tired and exhausted, we would eat, eat a steak for dinner. And the mm-hmm. next day we would always have so much more energy. And so it just goes to show how many nutrients are in those foods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just think it's also so interesting that you talk to anyone, you know, over the age of 70 or 80 and you ask them like, what did you eat growing up? I'm sure it just depends on where they grew up, but also a lot of them ate very simple animal foods. He said that they would never drink skim milk. They would always drink whole milk and they would feed the skim milk to the pigs. Interesting. And he said that they never drank pasteurized milk it was always raw milk Mm -hmm. and he was just very surprised that I was telling him that that what he was eating he should continue to eat because he had been told like that was not that was not good and he was very confused because that's literally what he grew up on I think the perfect example of this is vegetable oils versus butter because we've been eating butter and tallow for 10,000 plus years, like so many years, but now they're recommending that we eat vegetable oils and vegetable oils have literally only been around or popularized since the 1950s. Before then there was no way to make vegetable oil. They didn't know how to. And so it's like, they're changing a food, traditional food that we ate for so many years to this weird modern abstract food that literally never existed. Never ever. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something that's really interesting. And yeah, just how the recommendations have changed over the years, because from what I remember, butter used to be recommended within Mm. the the dietary guidelines Mm -hmm. when they first came out. Whereas now it's, it's all, you know, your refined vegetable oils. So we don't want to go too into the, the research behind why the recommendations have changed. We just have a couple of resources, um, one of them is the Ansel Keys study. So he was had a big influence on the USDA guidelines and did a lot of studies that were pretty flawed. So look into Ansel Keys. 
Look into Kellogg's. That's another interesting perspective to see how that affected the USDA guidelines. And there's also another really good book called The Big Fat Surprise. And that goes into especially the whole vegetable oil, butter perspective and why that has completely changed over the course of the past decade or two as far as recommendations go. So fascinating. So why are we even going into this? Why are we talking about this? Well, the whole my plate plate um, is where most people get their nutrition information. So if you're in a school, if you're in a hospital, if you're in an elderly home, if you're in a doctor's office, this is where all the information comes from. And this is where generally people get their nutrition advice from. And so as a whole, to just explain shortly, briefly what the my plate consists of, they suggest a quarter of your plate be fruits, a quarter be vegetables, a quarter be grains, a quarter be protein, and then dairy on the side. And they do have some recommendations on amounts for that, but in general, it consists of those five categories. And there are definitely some positives of the MyPlate recommendations. We're not going to bash them totally because generally some of the things are good. For example, they definitely suggest fruits and we agree with fruits. Um, they recommend eating protein. The types of protein we're a little iffy about, but at least they're recommending protein. Um, dairy, some people are super against dairy and think that shouldn't be included, but we are glad that it's included. Um, they also have calorie recommendations. So those seem pretty good. I did my own calculations as a 28 year old woman and it came up with 2,400 calories, which is definitely good for my body. And lastly, I also like that they have a lot of cultural considerations. So they don't want you to just eat specifically like Americans, but if you come from Hispanic culture or an Asian culture, they definitely try to take those into considerations. So there are a few things that we do agree with, but we also want to go in with to many of the things that we do not agree with. So we're going to go through some of the negatives as far as the categories that are recommended. So the first one is veggies. So their recommendation is three cups per day of vegetables, and they don't really classify the vegetables like we do. They classify them in colors, really. So one category is dark leafy greens. Another category is red. Another category is orange. Then they have bees, beans, peas, and lentils also in the vegetable category, which they're not really vegetables. But So one of the biggest problems with this is that first and foremost, in regards to gut health, all veggies are not equal, and a lot of vegetables can cause a lot of digestive distress, especially your cruciferous veggies, which are a lot of the dark leafy greens. So things like kale and mustard greens, collard greens, kohlrabi, cabbage, those are technically like your dark leafy greens. And for most people with digestive dysfunction, those are really, really hard to digest. So that's one of the biggest problems too. And I think there's just this overemphasis on tons and tons and tons of fiber, which more fiber is not always better. And essentially this idea that you have to load up so much on veggies, which we'll talk more about our perspective on vegetables, but it just doesn't really specify and personalize the vegetable recommendations for specific health conditions, especially for gut health. 
Anything else you want to add about veggies? Just that our culture highly emphasizes vegetables and highly values fiber. Mm -hmm. And when your gut is not well functioning, sometimes so much fiber and so many vegetables can actually cause a lot more harm Mm -hmm. than good. And I think we should be more focused on nutrients and especially minerals, especially for going daily. I feel like if anyone's constipated, the number one recommendation is eating more fiber, but we can actually become too reliant on that fiber. And if you're having constipation issues, it usually means that you're lacking in minerals and you need more minerals in order to get your paracelsus going and your digestive flowing. It's not so much that you're lacking in fiber, but sure. we'll probably do a whole entire episode on fiber yes, one of these days. Yeah. And we like to think more of veggies as a side dish. They're for texture, they're for flavor, you know, eating what's in season and minimizing the ones that are really, really hard to digest. So the next category are grains. And so I've always thought the grain recommendations for Americans are insane. I know it used to be seven to 11 servings. I think they've updated it to eight ounces of whole grains. And essentially, yeah, this is, this is a recipe for gut distress. So grains can be okay. They're just some of the harder to digest foods because if you think about grains, they're essentially seeds. They're seeds to grasses and seeds need special preparation to digest well. And essentially they're recommending one example of what they're recommending. So they say eight ounces. What does that even look like? I mean, that's hard to kind of conceptualize even for me. So as an example, they said one ounce equals one piece of bread, (laughs) meaning that if bread was your grain source, you could have eight slices of bread per day, which is insane, right? (laughs) And yeah, again, some of the problems with grains is that they're, they're mainly carbohydrates and they're harder to digest if you're not preparing them correctly and they can cause a lot of gut dysfunction. And the recommendation is to do whole grains, which means you're doing brown rice and wheat bread and things that have not been, been modified. But in reality, we're more a fan of, of process or what would you call them? Processed grains, grains, refined grains, essentially. So if you think about gut health, when grains have that outer coating on them, they're, it's, it's a lot of fiber and it's really hard to digest them. Whereas when you refine a grain, you essentially take off that outer coating of fiber and it's so much easier for your body to digest. So the perfect example is white rice versus brown rice. Everyone thinks brown rice is better because it's a whole grain. And essentially white rice is so much easier to digest because that outer coating has been removed. You have access to more of the vitamins and minerals. And of course you always want to pair it with a fiber, but yeah, just the whole idea of the emphasis on whole grains is is just so, so hard for your, your gut to digest all that fiber. Again, back to the fiber piece. If you're doing all these grains, all these veggies, it's a lot for your body to digest. And I think when people think of refined grains, they think of like Wonder Bread or like sure. a donut or something. But the issue with those things isn't the refined grains. It's all the other bullshit that's added to it, yeah. not necessarily that the grains are refined. So when we talk about refined grains, we're basically pretty much talking about 
um, einkorn flour, some kind of flour that's refined mm -hmm. and much easier to digest and then white rice. But all those other foods that are considered refined grains, they probably have a bunch of other nutrients and ingredients in there that we don't necessarily want to yeah. include. Tons of synthetic vitamins and minerals and yes. vegetable oils. Absolutely. All, always. So the next recommendation is protein and for a 2000 calorie diet, they recommend six ounces of protein per day, which could be very different depending on what you're eating. So if you're going to have one egg, one egg is considered one ounce of protein. So that means you can only have six eggs a day and that's your protein source for the day. Like that's only 36 grams of protein. That is not nearly enough protein. Also, if you were to take steak, a six ounce steak is only is 42 grams of protein, which is great for one meal, but not for the entire, entire day. day. Definitely not. Uh, there's also a huge emphasis on plant protein, and we will definitely go into a whole episode about plant proteins, vegetarianism, veganism, but all in all, plant proteins are not bioavailable. The definition of bioavailable means actually absorbed, digested, and utilized. So these plant proteins are very hard to absorb. They're very hard to digest. You're not going to actually obtain all of the nutrients and the protein inside of those plant proteins. And so that's why we recommend animal proteins at every single meal and snack. Protein is so essential, not just for building muscle, but for our liver function and for our gut to function properly. And they're literally the building blocks of our entire body and of, of our hormones. And so we definitely need more protein than what they're recommending. And we emphasis on animal proteins over plant proteins. Anything you want to add? I just think it's insane how low that recommendation is. If I ate 30, like that's how many grams of protein I eat probably with one meal, Exactly. let alone the entire day. And I think it's important to note that protein is very satiating. And when you don't eat enough protein, you have lots of sugar cravings and your blood mm -hmm. sugar is all over the place and you crave carbs and sugar and it's really hard to feel satiated. So I think it just leaves a lot of room for just binge eating on other things because you're not feeling satiated. That's not enough protein for an entire day to make you feel really good. Can't agree more. We'll also go into the RDAs in a minute and that's a little bit different. Uh, but the next category is dairy and they recommend three cups of dairy and they really emphasize low fat and fat free dairy. And if you can't do dairy, then some kind of lactose free dairy or fortified soy alternatives. No, thank you. So first with the low fat, fat free, I think sometimes every now and then that's okay to consume those kinds of foods, but there's also nothing wrong with full fat yogurt or Absolutely. full fat milk. All yeah. of the raw milk I drink and Madison drinks is always full fat. Um, plus we need saturated fats. We'll talk about the saturated fat intake in a minute, but that is where that's coming from. They're so afraid of these saturated fats. So they recommend lower fats. Also the fortified soy, soy is so terrible for our hormones, especially for the pandemic of estrogen dominance we have in our modern world. A lot of people think that dairy has a lot of estrogen, but 
the amount of estrogen in a glass of milk compared to the amount of phytoestrogens in a glass of soy milk is like completely night and day. There is so many phytoestrogens in soy milk and soy products, and that is absolutely contributing to our estrogen dominant symptoms. Uh, there's so, there's so much information on how soy is affecting our estrogen dominance and not good. Anything else to add? No, I like that dairy is included, but mm -hmm. I do think, I mean, low fat dairy or especially fat free dairy, like that old man said, I mean, skim milk, it's just, it does not taste great. No. And I think lower fat can be better. Or if you're trying to like minimize your fat intake, that can be okay, but also there is nothing wrong with the fat in dairy products. Totally agree. Can't yeah. agree more. So that leads us to the fat recommendations. So the USDA is very anti-saturated fat, and they promote using fats like canola oil, soybean oil, safflower oil. There's even a diagram that we looked at that said it was a better alternative to do to use canola oil instead of butter, which again, we're going to have a whole podcast about this because we love to talk about fats mm -hmm. and this whole vegetable oil pandemic we have. Mm -hmm. Essentially, I think what, this is one of the biggest things that I disagree with with in regards to the USDA recommendations is that they are very, yeah, they, they want to discourage you from using saturated fats, which are found in animal products, but also things like coconut oil and palm oil. And they're wanting you to use some of these unsaturated or polyunsaturated fats, which can be incredibly inflammatory and screw with your hormones and your gut function and your skin and your energy and just all the things. So I think they, they recommend what less than 7% of your mm -hmm. fat intake is saturated, which of course, if you're not eating saturated fats, you know, the fats you're eating are going to be uh, these other unsaturated fats, which are horrible for every single aspect of health. Totally cannot agree more. It's also interesting that these types of fats, they are polyunsaturated fats, and they directly inhibit the ability to utilize glucose. So, so many people think that sugar is the reason why we have diabetes, but the actual cause of diabetes is from all of these unsaturated fats clogging our cells and makes our cells unable to use that sugar properly. So the issue isn't necessarily the sugar, but rather this overabundance of all of these unsaturated fats mm -hmm. that don't allow us to properly utilize the sugar. And when we can't utilize sugar properly, our thyroid hormone is going to go completely out of whack. It's not going to be able to convert to its active form and your thyroid function is going to totally tank. When your thyroid hormones tanked, then your stress hormones are going to go up. Uh, these unsaturated fats too also mimic estrogen in the body and you've probably heard me say before, but we are in a world of estrogen dominance that lead to symptoms like irregular periods, PMS, hormonal acne, and so on. So by lowering and not consuming so many unsaturated fats can actually lower the estrogen in your body and improve all of these symptoms. And like we said before, many of these fats did not exist mm -hmm. before what the 1970s. I feel like you could end the argument there. <laughs> yeah. It's like they literally, they're new. No one, no one used these before. They require 
indu- like industrial mm-hmm. machinery and chemicals to create. If you think about a canola seed, it's small, very small. It looks like a mustard seed. You can't just press it and get fat out. You have to do so many different things. Whereas an olive or a coconut, they're just naturally mm-hmm. high in fat. Or like with butter or beef towel, you can literally make those things at your house. Yeah, so easy. These things literally did not exist. You should look up, uh, I think there's a how it's made, of oh, yeah. how canola, canola oil is made. And it's so disgusting. Oh my God, it's so Yeah, gross. it's terrible. It's like this toxic gray sludge. Oh, it's so gross. Yeah. And then t- the final kind of overall arching recommendation is to limit salt, added sugar, and saturated fats. Uh, we, also, we just kind of talked about why we don't like unsaturated fats and prefer saturated fats. But basically for saturated fats, our bodies prefer these fats because they're extremely stable and they don't oxidize when exposed to light, oxygen, and heat. Um, The recommendation to lower saturated fats came from that Ansel Key study, which was highly flawed and has been tried it's been tried to mimic again and has been they have totally failed. So and the USDA has even acknowledged that that study was wrong, but they still, for some reason, don't change the recommendations, mm-hmm. which is interesting. And I just thought of something random. So cholesterol used to be a mm-hmm. quote unquote nutrient of concern that they, they would tell people in the USDA guidelines to uh-huh. avoid cholesterol, which is found in animal foods. Yes. And in 2015, they revoked that okay. and said that cholesterol is no longer a nutrient of concern. Uh-huh. Like, no one knows that, right? They didn't come out and tell everyone, like, hey, we were you're wrong. good. You can eat cholesterol now. You don't have to worry about minimizing the amount of eggs you eat because of cholesterol. Like, they never came out and said that. But I think that was in 2015 they came out and said it's no longer a nutrient of concern. And people are still concerned about cholesterol because that's still, like, the narrative around it, even though they finally came out saying don't worry about it. So interesting. I don't know if y'all know, but cholesterol is literally the backbone of every single hormone in your body. So in order to make thyroid hormone, in order to make progesterone, in order to make testosterone, in order to make stress hormones and estrogen, you need cholesterol as your backbone to make every single one of them. So without just that basic backbone, you're not going to be able, your hormone health is going to be tanked. Absolutely. Uh, For the added sugar recommendation to limit added sugars, I think that's relatively okay. But we also have to, they don't talk about what is what. So high fructose corn syrup and regular refined white sugar are completely two different substances and act very differently inside the body. Like how they work and interact with the body is totally different. In fact, I remember reading a study about high fructose corn syrup and that there's like three times the amount of carbohydrates than that's written on the label. And so it might say that there's 20 grams of added sugar that's from high fructose corn syrup, but it could actually be three times more than that. So I think we want to make sure we're in a good place. For me personally, I can metabolize sugar very well. And so I'm not afraid of eating a cookie with normal white sugar or eating or even drinking a Mexican Coke every now and then with real real sugar, sugar, not high fructose corn syrup or those weird fake artificial sugars that are in the 
Utah craze of the Diet Cokes and all that nonsense. Mm, yeah. So I think it's important to be aware of your sugar and how well you can properly digest it. And do you want to talk about salt? Yeah. I mean, I think most people are very scared of salt. I think within the context of what people are eating, if they're, I mean, that's, that's what matters is the context of what you're eating. So if you're eating tons of processed foods, you're eating out out all, all the time. Yes. Your salt intake is going to be high and probably it's not coming from good sources, So I think that's when the problems can come. I don't think it's ever really just, oh, it's salt's fault. It's always within the context of a diet that has tons of tons of like refined sugars, artificial sugars, tons of processed foods, refined vegetable oils. Essentially, if you think about having salt, you know, say you cook most of your meals at home, it's really hard to to overdo salt because Mm -hmm. if something tastes too salty, it just tastes gross. So within the context of you eating most of your meals at home and salting to taste, salt can be great. And it's actually really important for digestion and your stress hormones. Definitely your stress hormones. You burn through salt so quickly and your adrenals use up so much salt. Yes. Especially when you're under stress. And that's sometimes why we crave crave salt salt or crave sugar when we're under stress because we're utilizing those nutrients so quickly. Yes. Makes so much sense. And the reason behind the salt with digestion is that salt is sodium chloride and your stomach acid is hydrochloric acid. And essentially the, the chloride in sodium chloride is helping your body create good stomach acid, which is so important for good digestion. So crucial. So some of the other faults that we saw aside from those ones, there's no focus on quality, right? There's no mention of the very, like the variables within each of these categories, right? Mm -hmm. We talked about protein a little bit. There's no, there's no mention of plant-based protein versus animal-based protein and bioavailability. There's no focus on you know, organic locally grown veggies. There's no focus on, yeah, just the quality of the food that you're eating. Absolutely. Some of the other ones that we talked about, basically the whole grains thing, grains, beans, nuts, and seeds, they require, like we said, very special preparation to make them easier to digest and more nutritious. There's no mention of that, right? There's no mention of soaking, sprouting, fermenting, using utilizing organic when you can there's no mention of any of that as far as grains go and there's really just no mention of like seasonality or specific health conditions like if you have gut issues you know you probably shouldn't be eating three cups of veggies per day or maybe you shouldn't be eating like raw nuts and seeds like there's no there's no specifics and essentially at the end of the day i feel like sure you know, some of these foods are okay, but at the end of the day, I feel like essentially my whole goal when I'm talking to my clients and for my own diet is I'm trying to maximize the amount of nutrition that I'm getting. And so some of these foods, sure, they're fine and you tolerate them, but they're just taking up calories that you could be eating more nutritious, more delicious foods, essentially. Can't agree more. So now we briefly want to go over the RDA. The RDA is the recommended daily allowance for, they have it for protein, carbs, and fats, and then for all uh, vitamins and minerals. So the RDA is based off a 2000 calorie diet. And the RDA basically is just the minimum amount to prevent 
disease. So this is the absolute minimum, not the amount that we should feel that we want to obtain to feel our optimal best self. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to just barely avoid a disease. I want to be my best optimal self. So a lot of these can be not enough or too much based on our research and experience. So the first one is, so based off a 2000 calorie diet, they recommend 50 to 175 grams of protein per day. Now, I don't know about you, but that is such a wide range. Like, how do you know what is optimal for you or for your body? I think if I was a woman and I was really concerned about losing weight or something, I would look at that and say, okay, I'm fine with 50 grams protein and that's it. Whereas we know based off how your physiology and biology works, you need at minimum 100 grams of protein per day just to simply function, not even to be your optimal self again. So that recommendation, I I mean, 175 grams is definitely a good amount, but that's just such a wide range. I feel like that's difficult for the average person to come up with what the right amount would be for them. Exactly. Yeah. Anything else? No. No. Then for carbohydrates, they recommend 225 grams to 325 grams. Which if you have a great run in metabolism and you're in optimal health, that does seem like a good amount of carbohydrates. But for someone who's struggling or who has prediabetes or is really sensitive to glucose and carbohydrates, that might be a lot lot of carbohydrates. It's also like, where are these carbohydrates coming from? We can digest simple sugars very different than we digest complex sugars or complex carbohydrates. So again, I think for the average person who's robust and healthy, that might be a good recommendation, but we know that at least like 60% of Americans are pre-diabetic. And so that might not be the best recommendation for those. Lastly, they recommend 44 to 77 grams of fat per day, but only again, like Madison said earlier, only 7% of saturated fat. So a bunch of that fat is coming from those unsaturated sources like the vegetable oils, nuts and seeds and so on. And so we think 44 to 77 grams of fat per day is good, but we would recommend getting the majority of that from saturated fats, not unsaturated. Yeah. So after all of that critique, what should you eat, right? Like what is our framework for nutrition? We've made it super simple. So just to give you an idea of kind of where, why we came up with this, of course, we wanted to mention some of those people who have influenced us or have made an impact on our perspective on nutrition. So of course, like we've said, one of them is Weston E. Price, Ray Pete, Morley Robbins, Natasha Campbell is another one, Kate Shanahan. And ultimately, this framework for eating that we've come up with is just based on our own personal experience because we've both been in this world for a decade or more, just doing our own research and working with people and and seeing how this all works. So we made it really simple. We have four categories to focus on. The first one is protein. So emphasis on animal protein with every single meal we recommend a bare minimum of a hundred grams per day. Like no matter who you are, if anything more than that. So I eat probably like 150 to 160 grams per day. 
And that is like one of the first and foremost things you want to think about when you're building a plate. Your this is this could be your new my plate guideline is like protein at every single meal, animal based because you are getting so much more bioavailable, easy to digest protein with those sources. Absolutely. I just think for a grown woman, we should get at least 100 grams, but probably aim more for 150. Yes. If you want to do the exact calculations, take your body weight in pounds and multiply it by one or by 0.8, mm-hmm. and that will give you your grams of protein per day. Perfect. Okay. So that's the first thing to put on your, my plate is your protein source. The second is fats and the fats are really easy because if you're eating really good quality animal proteins, and that is all kinds of animal proteins, we're not saying don't eat red meat, just eat chicken and turkey. No, like all types of animal proteins, usually most of them will have some type of fat source. So most often you don't really need to worry about adding an additional fat because you're getting fats with your animal protein sources. But also this takes into consideration the types of fats you're cooking with. So we recommend using things like butter, coconut oil, beef tallow, ghee, and yeah, lard, animal fats, if you're using those two to cook with. So that is your second piece of your plate. The third one is carbohydrates. And the main ones that we like to focus on are root veggies, fruit, honey. So starches and simple sugars. And green veggies, if you'd like and you tolerate them, but those are not the main piece of your carbohydrates. So these carbs, root veggies, fruit, honey, maple syrup, sugar, squashes, squashes, those are, those can make up the majority of your carbohydrates with every single meal. Anything to add on carbs? No, just that a lot of people try to include vegetables in the carbohydrate category, which I think they should actually be their own category of fiber um, because they yes. really don't actually have that many carbohydrates in them or sugars in them. So a lot of people consider just regular vegetables as a carbohydrate when really they shouldn't be. It's more fiber. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you got your protein, you got your fat source, you got your carb source. And then the last piece is sea salt and spices. So honestly, for most of my meals, I just season my meals with sea salt. And that's enough because the food on its own is delicious. You can add additional spices if you like. And that could just depend on what spices you like, where you live, what your specific cultural background of spices are. But honestly... That is literally it. Proteins, fats, carbs, sea salt, bare minimum. Bare minimum. It doesn't really have to be complicated. Again, we try to make our society and nutrition tries to make things so complicated when in reality it doesn't need to be. Yeah. And speaking of complicated, the USDA food guidelines is a 161 page document (laughs) that we don't even want to read, let alone the average American doesn't want to read about how to build a healthy meal. So I love this perspective because it's very simple and very nutritious. So just to give you an idea of just kind of how your macros would play out with this framework for eating, at each meal you would have anywhere from like 25 to 30 grams of protein, 50, 40 to 50 grams of carbohydrates, and 15 to 20 grams of fat. Again, it totally depends on your macro goals and where you are in life, but that's usually a general guideline. And essentially you're having every single macro at every single meal, which is also important. 
Absolutely. And I also just, like Madison said earlier, we come up with this from our own experience, but also so much research. And when people say, well, show me a research study to prove your point. It's like, okay, yes, one, I could absolutely show you a research study to prove our point, but there's also plenty of research studies that prove opposite our point. So no matter where you come from, you can always find some kind of article that proves your point on either end. And so this is why I think in the last episode, Madison, you said to try this out yourself and use your own personal experience because no one is going to heal you or save you or help you other than you. Like only you know your body best and to just keep experimenting. For sure. Because at the end of the day, like your body will tell you if something's working for you because yeah, there were many times in my journey of eating so many different types of diets and I continued to have symptoms and didn't feel great, but I thought it was quote unquote right for me. So I completely ignored how my body was feeling. So yes, I love that because at the end of the day, we can tell you all this. You can look up research studies to support anything and everything you want, but yeah, it's, it's all about self-experimentation. Absolutely. Anything else to add? I think we're good. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you in the next one.